I am here, bitches. Welcome to the show. All right. It is great to be back. So, uh, was on a vacation. Went to North Carolina. A lot of fun. Laid on a beach and whatnot. Left you guys with a decent amount of content. Gave you um, Kyle's unpopular takes. There were quite a few of them. Um, and yeah, it looks like, I mean, I, you guys know me. I didn't gauge the reaction because I want to keep my sanity. And I know that I'm walking into minefield with uh, those topics. But looks like it got a good, a decent response in terms of like, you know, the raw numbers of, of who was watching them. Um, I was a little surprised at which ones popped and which ones didn't, you know. So um, let me see. Let me, let me go back a little bit here and see. I know that the guns one was the most popular, but honestly, I think the only reason why that is is because it was the first one. Oh, shit. Sorry, getting a text message. Um, hold on, responding to a text message. Um, <clears throat> what was I saying? Anyway, uh, yeah, I think the reason why the guns unpopular take was the most popular one in terms of viewership is because it was the first one. But um, <clears throat> prostitution did well. Fantastic thumbnail on that one. Shout out to Lilith. Lilith is doing these new thumbnails, and they're fantastic. Um, talked about drugs was an unpopular one. I'm going through, I'm going through them right now. So I'm looking at uh, how many each one has. Abortion was kind of popular. Yeah. Anyway, I actually had fun doing that series. It's fun um, tap dancing on minefields from time to time. But um, anyway, we're back to the regular show. By the way, what everybody needs to understand is that this week we have one of the biggest uh, Crystal Kyle and Friends yet. We are having the one and only Russell Brand on Crystal Kyle and Friends. So that will be a lot of fun if I don't say so myself. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Um, he's gotten more and more political as time has gone by, man. He really has. So that'll be really fun to talk to him. Who knows where the conversation will go. Um, we had Fasha Kier, who is Bernie's campaign manager on the previous episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends. And that was awesome. Um, it was interesting talking about how he thinks it could have gone differently. Um, how Bernie could have won, if there's anything Bernie could have done to win. Um, Talking strategy with him, what he thought made sense, what he doesn't. Uh, Talking about Biden's record so far. So everybody check out the previous Crystal Kyle and Friends. Check out the next Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, But without further ado, we are back on the regular show. We are back from the regular show. And um, yeah, we are back for the regular show, excuse me. And there's a lot to talk about. So without further, I'm already, I've already been babbling for eight minutes. Let me go ahead and jump into it. <clears throat> uh, I'll give well, a quick tease. Biden on his vaccine mandate. Ben Shapiro talks about that. Jake Capper talks about that. George W. Bush with the 9-11 memorial. Michael Moore comments on the anniversary of 9-11, 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, Bernie versus Manchin. AOC versus Manchin. Andrew Yang starting a third party. Uh, a lot of stuff. Sit back, relax. Let all this knowledge get dropped all up in your cranium. Here we go. So while we were on vacation, there was a a bit of a scandal, one might say. There's a new policy that was announced by Joe Biden. Uh, Some are calling it a vaccine mandate. Some would be wrong in calling it a vaccine mandate. 
So I want to show you part of his speech here that we're going to come back, tell you exactly what's in it, and then I'll give you my take on it. My job as president is to protect all Americans. So tonight, I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Some of the biggest companies are already requiring this. United Airlines, Disney, Tyson's Food, and even Fox News. The bottom line, we're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated coworkers. We're going to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by increasing the share of the workforce that is vaccinated in businesses all across America. My plan will extend the vaccination requirements that I previously issued in the healthcare field. Already, I've announced we'll be requiring vaccinations at all nursing home workers who treat patients on Medicare and Medicaid because I had that federal authority. Tonight, I'm using that same authority to expand that to cover those who work in hospitals, home health care facilities, or other medical facilities, a total of 17 million health care workers. If you're seeking care at a health facility, you should be able to know that the people treating you are vaccinated. Simple, straightforward, period. Next, I will sign an executive order that will now require all executive branch federal employees to be vaccinated, all. I've signed another executive order that will require federal contractors to do the same. If you want to work with the federal government and do business with us, get vaccinated. If you want to do business with the federal government, vaccinate your workforce. And tonight, I'm removing one of the last remaining obstacles that make it difficult for you to get vaccinated. The Department of Labor will require employers with 100 or more workers to give those workers paid time off to get vaccinated. No one should lose pay in order to get vaccinated or take a loved one to get vaccinated. All right, so there you have it. The order is this, for all businesses with 100 employees or more, you either have to get vaccinated, the workers have to get vaccinated, or they can show a negative test once a week. That's what it is. Now, the thing that's been frustrating me to no end is that within the first few days of this, on Twitter, with the people I follow, who are obviously mostly political junkies, virtually everybody was being dishonest about what this is. Also, mainstream media was being dishonest about what this is, calling it a mandate. It is not a mandate. A mandate is you have to get the vaccine. You have no choice. Go get vaccinated. End of conversation. A mandate is not go get vaccinated, or if you choose you don't want to, then you can show a negative test. On what planet is that a mandate? I'm giving you options. One of those options is get the vaccine. The other option is don't get the vaccine, but show a negative test. By no stretch of the definition of mandate is this a mandate. So people, even who, people who I like and respect are, you know, out there pretending this is a mandate, and that is what it is, it's pretending, because it's not. And that was annoying me to no end. Because if this was, and I've told you guys this a number of times, I've done any segment that I've done discussing my ideas on vaccination, I've said this, that if it was a flat national mandate, I would oppose it. Because in my opinion, I think that's government overreach. I think there should be enough wiggle room where if you really don't want to get vaccinated, you can get out of getting vaccinated. And I don't even care if it's, you know, people have the religious exemption, that's one thing. 
I go a step further. I think even ideological exemption. So in other words, to claim, oh, it's my religion, that's why I don't want to get vaccinated. Okay, fair enough, but there's nothing unique or special about a religious belief versus an ideological belief. In fact, it's the same thing. You don't have magical powers all of a sudden if you have a religious belief behind something. No. So you could say for an ideological reason, I just don't like the vaccines. I don't think they're safe. I, I looked at the evidence incorrectly and came to the wrong conclusion. Therefore, I don't want to get vaccines. I don't like vaccines. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, my whole thing was I like the idea of soft mandates. And you know what I would describe this uh, Biden move as? A soft mandate because he's giving people the wiggle room of you could show a negative test once a week. If this was Joe Biden saying, I'm mandating everybody in America gets the vaccine, end of conversation, I'd say, no, that goes too far. That's government overreach. If the government can compel you to put this in your arm and give you no wiggle room, well, why should we trust the same government that lied us into the Iraq war, did the Tuskegee experiments, did Operation Northwoods, did the Bay of Pigs, uh, did internment of Japanese Americans, did Native American genocide, like the list goes on and on. Yes, there's reason to be skeptical. There's reason to not trust the government. You have to evaluate each thing they do on their own merits. This happens to be an area where they're correct that the vaccine would help you. It's safe and effective. But because they have no credibility and they shouldn't have any credibility, if anybody's being honest about that can admit that, there should be wiggle room to get out of taking the vaccine. Now, again, this is an issue where they happen to be correct, but I like that they're giving people the out of you can test once a week instead. So, listen, he's right. Like, he gave, we gave unvaccinated people a long time to make the right decision. Delta is still surging. It is overwhelmingly a pandemic of the unvaccinated now. So whether or not people want to acknowledge it, this is something that is going to help people. And by the way, if you say, hey, this, is un- this isn't effective, not true. All the evidence that we have to this point is that when there are vaccine mandates that are put into place, um, they end up greatly increasing the number of people who get vaccinated. And If it doesn't, I'm still okay with that because that would still mean people are getting tested once a week, which means we're generally keeping people more protected from the spread of the Delta variant. So to get a little more specific here, like he said, the Department of Labor, this is being issued under the Department of Labor, 80 million workers will be affected, a lot of workers. Um, And uh, it's being done also through OSHA, Occupational and Safety Health Administration. uh, And... Also, they're using the Commerce Clause to justify it. It allows the federal government to regulate business. And notice, what he did was Biden took that extra step to make sure it's legal by removing it a layer. So he's not saying all Americans have to get vaccinated. He's basically saying through the federal government's ability to regulate commerce, through your employers, you have to get vaccinated. So it's, it's another way to ensure that it's, it's legal. But honestly, and this is something that I don't even necessarily like, um, if he were to say, hey, guys, um, we're going to mandate Americans have to get the vaccine and not do it through business, that also would probably be constitutional because there was a 1904 Supreme Court case on vaccines. Um, the name of the case is Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And there are, at the time, there were 11 states that had compuls- compulsory vaccination laws. And the Massachusetts law empowered the Board of Health um, to have mandatory vaccines for adults over the age of 21. And if you refuse to get vaccinated and you lived in one of these places, there would be a $5 fine. And this was in, in relation to an outbreak of smallpox. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you can have these uh, individual towns or cities have mandatory vaccinations, and that's perfectly legal and constitutional. Um, this falls under the police power of the state. 
So even if Biden was to go further and say, we're just going to mandate everybody gets the vaccine, that probably would be upheld in the Supreme Court. They'd say that is legal. That is constitutional. Now, again, my personal take on that is it goes a little too far. I don't like the idea of a flat mandate. I like the idea of leaving people wiggle room. Um, and that's basically, that's exactly what Biden did here. Left massive wiggle room, not massive wiggle room, but he left wiggle room. So now the default option is you should get the vaccine. And if you want to opt out of it, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass. Good, good. Feel the pain in the ass, please, by all means. Anybody who says, oh, how dare I have to get tested once a week? How dare somebody who's a construction worker be mandated by law to have a helmet on their head? Oh, that's a violation of my liberty to protect my head from catastrophic falls or whatever. Oh, my, how dare you force, enforce that I wear a, a seatbelt when I'm driving in my car? That's a, that you're taking away my freedom and liberty. That is a reasonable rule and regulation for public safety. That's what that is. Now, yes, is it... A, a slight deviation from the wild, wild west approach where there's ultimate freedom and liberty? Yes, but that's the whole point of governance is you have to balance these two values. Balance freedom and liberty versus the collective communal good. And, there are, and so you're balancing freedom and liberty with security. And they're, they're always balancing these things. There's always a trade-off. And the question is, where do you draw the line? Listen, there's some issues where I fall much more on the side of freedom and liberty. And then there's other issues where I fall much more on the side of uh, security, and I fall much more on the side of the collective good. So anybody who tries to tell you there's not a trade-off with these things is just lying to you. In other words, you can't say, I have this cockamimi uh, view of freedom and liberty, and then everything will work out for the best. No. We gave people a tremendous amount of time to get the vaccine, and we're at, what, 70% of the American public? Now, that's a good number. Don't get me wrong. But if we can get it to 85% or 90%, that's even better. And then you're really, really, really putting a dent and the ability of COVID to spread around. There's still breakthrough cases, and it's like 50% protection you have from the vaccine from the Delta variant, but it's still over 90% protection from hospitalization, severe illness, and death. So in other words, once you get almost everybody vaccinated or everybody vaccinated, you are pretty much done with the pandemic. So this is, this is a, a, you know, a strategic move for public health that the Biden administration is doing, and I think it's a good idea. The other thing is he's baiting conservatives into going full anti-vax. And that would effectively make it so that he gets stronger in the suburbs for the next election. Now, how much of that political calculation was part of this? I don't know, but I think it's a good political calculation if that actually was a consideration. Because, you know, everybody, I, there's a few people who I trust who I view as like, you know, almost like a voice of that demographic in America. And I asked them what they think about it. And their response was exactly what I expected. It was like, good. Like, what was he supposed to do? Sit back and let, it, let the virus keep on ravaging the country and do absolutely nothing? It's, he's saying either get the vaccine or get tested. That's not unreasonable. That's perfectly reasonable. He's giving you options. So I think that what's going to happen is you do have more Republicans who are going to be baited into going full anti-vax. And that's not going to land. Biden is siding with the 70% of Americans who are vaccinated and who feel like they made an intelligent decision and took something that's very safe. And I think that's a, a political bet that's going to pay off. So, um, again, if this was a mandate that left zero wiggle room, I would be against it. I think that goes too far. I think the government 
you should be skeptical of the government. You shouldn't trust them at face value. You should uh, evaluate everything on its own merits. Look at the evidence. Look at the data. Um, this happens to be an instance where the government is correct and you getting the vaccine is a good idea. But, yeah, as long as he's living, leaving that wiggle room of you can get tested once a week, zero issue with it at all. So the vaccine rates are going to go up now. Whoever really has an issue with it can still just get tested. Totally fine. Everybody should be happy. Everybody should be happy, but they're not. Um, there's already people. We'll get to some reaction in a little bit. But yet again, I'm sensing a pattern here. Whenever Biden does something that is truly, truly positive and good, that's when there's the biggest backlash. Not just from conservative circles, which them too, but also from liberal elites and mainstream media. So, you know, I'm telling you, there's endless incentive to go in the wrong direction as president because that's where you get rewarded. I mean, the right's going to beat you up no matter what. The Republicans are going to attack you no matter what. But what's funny is that liberal media only attacks Biden for the best stuff that he does. You know, I'm telling you, it, it's amazing how consistently that's the case, pulling out of Afghanistan, this. So anyway, don't call it a mandate. Don't call it a mandate. You can say it's, I'm comfortable with using the terminology soft mandate, but even that I think is slightly misleading. Um, he's giving people a choice get vaccinated, or take a test. I think that is super reasonable, and um, I think it's going to have a positive impact, both objectively and in the real world, and also politically. Okay, next. Next, baby, here we go. Let's keep going. Now we got Ben Shapiro's reaction. So Ben Shapiro weighed in on um, Joe Biden's new soft vaccine mandate. I call it soft because he's giving people the option, businesses with 100 employees or more, either get vaccinated or take a test every week and show a negative result. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, ben Shapiro, not so much. Look at the words he decides to use to describe what Biden did here. Let's be real about this. Joe Biden is a failed president. He's a failed president. He failed in Afghanistan, and he blames everybody else. He has failed on the economy, and he blames everybody else. And he has failed on COVID, and so he blames everybody else. And what this necessitates is Joe Biden making policy moves that are unlikely to result in any sort of serious improvement for the American people, but are simply designed to shift blame away from himself. So just like the Americans stuck in Afghanistan eventually said the administration are there because they want to be there, right? it's their fault that they are stuck there, not our fault, for running the worst design surrender in modern American history. Nope, it's really not about that. It's about the Americans stuck there. It's their fault. In the same way, Joe Biden's failure to prevent the, the, vaccine, the vaccine mandates and the mask mandates from being promulgated in blue areas and therefore shutting down the economy, his unwillingness to recognize when we have reached the end of a pandemic and it has now just become endemic, his failures there have now necessitated that he take this extremely harsh action that is unlikely to ever be implemented because, frankly, no one is going to comply. So we'll get into the policy of this in just one second and, and why I say that this thing is never going to be implemented on a wide scale, why it's likely to be struck down, why it's almost unenforceable, even were it not to be struck down. But last night, Joe Biden made 
the most authoritarian move that I have seen in the last 10, 15, 20 years of American politics. I'm having a hard time pegging it exactly because we've seen authoritarian moves before. Very often, it turns out, Democratic presidents have a bad habit of saying, I don't have the power to do X, and then five seconds later, they just do it. So you remember Barack Obama said over and over and over, I don't have the power to simply stop enforcing immigration law, and then he just did it. And you'll remember that Joe Biden said, I don't have the power to issue an eviction moratorium via the Centers for Disease Control, and then he just did it. Well, you'll recall that this administration has over and over and over said they do not have the power to issue any sort of a vaccine mandate. And it is dictatorial, authoritarian stuff. It really is amazing. What's amazing, then, is your description of events, because it is wildly, wildly misleading. A mandate would be, you have to get the vaccine, that's the end of the conversation. That is not what Joe Biden did. He said, either get the vaccine. Businesses with 100 employees or more either get the vaccine or get tested once a week. Why is everybody leaving out that important piece of context? That changes everything. In fact, it changes it from something I wouldn't support to something I definitely support. I don't know why everybody's leaving this out. Mainstream media keeps saying vaccine, vaccine mandate, vaccine mandate. You got to get a paragraph three in every article for them to say, or you don't actually have to get the vaccine. You could just take a test. Okay. Then you have people who some lefties are calling it a mandate. It's not a mandate. It's not a mandate. So conservative media is saying this. Mainstream media is saying this. And some lefty commentators are saying this. Nobody is being honest with you. Everybody's misleading you. It's so disingenuous. It's so dishonest to pretend this is just a mandate. End of conversation. If it was a mandate, I would be against it. It is not a mandate. He's giving you the option of testing. That means you don't actually have to take the vaccine. You could just take a test once a week. That is definitely not overly burdensome. Now, biggest part here, of course, he says, it's the most authoritarian move he's seen from a president in 20 years of American politics. Have you been hiding in a cave? Are you uh, like Tom Hanks in Castaway? Have you seen nothing that's gone on over the past 20 years? Ben, we did torture, torture. We did extraordinary rendition. We totally eliminated habeas corpus and due process. We have Guantanamo Bay. We have the NSA illegally spying on all Americans. We did illegal and offensive wars based on lies on lies, the most authoritarian move. You know what's authoritarian? The war on drugs. People who are nonviolent, who never hurt anybody, and now they get locked up for a decade because they decided to put a substance in their body on their own when they're not hurting anybody else? That is authoritarian, Ben. Torture is authoritarian. Getting rid of due process and habeas corpus, that's authoritarian. Illegal wars, that's authoritarian. The most authoritarian move is to give people the option of saving themselves by taking the vaccine or just testing to make sure they don't have the virus. Are you out of your mind? And the answer is no. He's just a hack. He's just a partisan hack. So let's run through a bunch of the stuff that he said. Um, So he says Biden is a failed president. Failed president, how? It depends on which action he took. What are you talking about? Um, there's a number of things he did that I think are fantastic. Raise the minimum wage through executive order for about 400,000 Americans. It applies to federal workers, and it applies to um, federal government contractors, even tipped workers in that area. I think that's an absolutely wonderful thing. 
I think right to repair, which middle America, real salt of the earth, blue collar workers, it, that helps them massively instead of, you know, having to go to John Deere for them to rip you off to get their, you know, your farm equipment fixed. You can repair it yourself. Finally, for the longest time, there was this terrible rule that I guess John Deere had lobbied to put into place. Biden got rid of that. Now, as Ben said, anything positive about that, even though most of his listeners are these sorts of Republican voters? No, because, again, he's a liar and he's a partisan hack. It depends on the issue, Ben. Is there stuff that I'd criticize? Absolutely. He said he was going to give us $2,000 checks. All of a sudden, it was down to 1400 You know, he didn't get a $15 minimum wage in the last COVID relief bill when he should have. So there's plenty of stuff to criticize, but, oh, Biden is a failed president. And what's his first example? This is how you know Ben is just a total idiot. He failed in Afghanistan. Oh, he failed in Afghanistan. So getting over 100,000 people out of the country in what, a two-week time span? That's a failure? We had 20 years of a war where we learned from the Afghanistan papers we were lied to repeatedly. We allied with warlords with child sex slaves. We killed innocent people all the time. We were exploiting natural resources. We cared about the mineral wealth in Afghanistan and the opium and the oil in Iraq and all these different things. He had nothing to say to criticize 20 years of illegal occupation and killing innocent civilians. The thing he has a problem with is the way we pulled out of the war. The way we got out of the imperialist exploitation that we were engaged in. Getting over 100,000 people out is a massive success. As they said, the biggest airlift in U.S. history. That's probably correct. Over 100,000 people out. And there was, what, less than 200 Americans who were left? And, by the way, most of them were dual citizens. And, by the way, most of them were like, I don't really want to go. They were trying to get them out for months beforehand, and they didn't didn't want to get out. Somehow that's Biden's fault. Somehow that's a disaster. He said he failed the economy. On what planet did he fail the economy? Now, listen, the economy in the U.S. has been terrible for decades because it's rigged by corporations and billionaires, of course. So if you're going to grade it on a scale... At the very least, you have to say he's on par with Trump or better than Trump, because we have job creation under Biden. You know, when we had the heart of COVID hit, it was a mess. We were hemorrhaging jobs under Trump. And also, Trump's main economic accomplishment was a tax cut for the wealthy, where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. Now, Ben likes that, though. He likes that. That's why he thinks Trump was good with the economy and Biden's bad with the economy. So, I, I mean, it's just everything. He views everything in such a partisan, tribalist hack way. Biden's a failed president. Democrats suck. Republicans are awesome. Rah, rah on Ben Shapiro. How can anybody find this entertaining or interesting? I mean, this is like the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. Um, And then, okay, so let's get to some of the other stuff he said. He called what Biden did here a, quote, extremely harsh action. Is it harsh? Either get a vaccine or get a test. Ooh, so harsh to give people options. Um, Now, there's one thing he says, which is true. He says it's sort of unlikely to be implemented. Um, That, I think, is correct in this sense. Yeah, OSHA doesn't have the manpower to, like, connect to all these businesses, talk to all these businesses, and follow up and make sure they do it. So really what you're doing is you're just sort of relying on the goodwill of people to listen to their government to one extent or another, for businesses to listen to the government. Now, where he's wrong is he says, well, nobody's going to comply. Well, that's not true, because what we've seen up to this point is that whenever you have at a smaller level, different vaccine mandates, people usually end up complying. 
Because not everybody's this rigid ideologue like Ben Shapiro. No, sir, how dare you? I said, nobody gets hurt. No, I will not get the vaccine. No, saving my life and maybe others. Most people are just like, well, I didn't really want it, but okay, I guess. That's what ends up happening. That's what all the data shows. There was, a, what, there was one I read. I forgot what field it was in or what business it was in, but people were given seven weeks to comply. It was a, a company that, made, that said everybody's got to get the vaccine for our company. They were given seven weeks to comply. We're five weeks in, and 50% of the people who need to get the vaccine have gotten the vaccine. So they work. They increase the numbers massively. So when he says nobody's going to comply, that's definitely not true. What he's correct about is that there's really not an enforcement mechanism, so there probably won't be punishments if you don't do it. That's the other thing. Um, and then finally... At the end, he says, this is like Obama with immigration law. He said, well, I can't just stop enforcing immigration law, and then he just did it. I don't know what he's talking about here, because Obama is called the deporter-in-chief. He deported more people than any president in American history. Now, look at how he portrays Obama, even though that's the case about Obama. He makes it seem like Obama was soft on immigration, and he opened up the borders. That's the taste he's trying to leave in your mouth. But you know the reality that he's called the deporter-in-chief, and he deported more than all the other presidents. So on what planet does this make sense? Ben Shapiro is either massively ignorant about this or he's a liar. There's no, there's no other option. He's ignorant or he's a liar. He either doesn't know even though he should or he knows and he's misleading you on purpose to try to make it seem like Obama was so soft on immigration. This is Ben Shapiro in a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen. This, this is, I mean, he's just dishonest or totally ignorant about the stuff he's supposed to know about. And then he talks, I love this part. He says, oh, they said, uh, the Supreme Court said you can't do the eviction moratorium. Then they just did it. Good. <laughs> That's a thing I like. Now, by the way, the Supreme Court just slapped down that extended eviction moratorium. So we're sort of asked out and people are going to become homeless. But look at where Ben's concerns are. Ben doesn't, he's not, doesn't seem concerned at all about the tens of thousands or millions of people who are about to get evicted. He's more concerned that uh, you need to make sure you follow the law and do the right thing. Well, if the law says we need to commit a genocide, what do you think, Ben? Is that something that you'd be like, but the law says it, so do it. That's, I mean, that's the kind of thinking this is. To be clear, he didn't say we should have a genocide. But he's saying the Supreme Court says and the law says you can't do an eviction moratorium. So, yeah, let everybody get kicked down the street. Let millions of people get kicked down the street. Over 30% of people can't make rent. Just kick them all out. That's effectively what he's saying. Like, this is something that would be a good thing that Biden did, under pressure from Cori Bush, by the way. And he's not even telling you the total truth, because, of course, they didn't just extend the previous eviction moratorium. They changed it up and did a new eviction moratorium and tweaked a lot of the provisions that would have to go through judicial review again, which is exactly what happened. So, but there you go. I mean, look, I'll leave it up to you guys. He, this is dictatorial. This is he says dictatorial and authoritarian. Other people, I'm sure, have said dictatorial, authoritarian, fascist, tyrannical. This is Pol Pot and Hitler and Stalin and Mao for Joe Biden to care about public health and give people a choice between vaccines or getting a test once a week. It's one of the better things that Biden did. And the meltdown only continues to prove to me how I actually think I hate the media more than I hate our politicians. And I hate our politicians a lot, so that's really saying something. Next. 
Next, here we go. More on this. So Joe Biden did what I would classify as a soft vaccine mandate for businesses with 100 employees or more. You either need to get the vaccine or get tested once a week. He's giving people out. I think that's totally reasonable. Um, but, but, so you had the right, of course, go after him relentlessly. Um, but surprisingly, liberal elite circles, mainstream media, they're also not too happy with Joe Biden and his speech on this. Take a look. There's the question of coercion and there's a question of persuasion, uh, and you see him moving from persuasion to coercion. Uh, he took on a scolding tone, uh, talking to the people who were unvaccinated, talking about how you know, people's patience is running out, talking about this mandate. Um, and I don't know as a matter of politics, unless, of course, the goal was to get all these Republican governors and politicians to come out against this, I don't know that that was not predictable. This is part of the American public. This is part of the ethos in this country. People don't want big government telling them what to do. Um, Now, the difference between now and back then is now uh, the anti-science component of our society is bigger. Uh, And it it has – there are grifters. There are people who are using this for ratings, for clicks, uh, all sorts of – for votes. And so – I haven't yet really seen uh, the Biden administration talk or try to address this. I don't think scolding is the approach. Uh, There are these purveyors of misinformation out there, and they're not just on the right. Robert Kennedy Jr. is one of the most notorious ones. Uh, And I haven't seen the president or anyone say, look, people, like he's scolding the people that are being lied to as opposed to the liars. You know what I mean? Like instead of saying, There are a bunch of people just trying to get your money, trying to get your attention, trying to get your votes, trying to get your views and clicks. They're lying to you. Instead of shaming the liars and trying to educate the people being lied to, he's scolding the people being lied to. And again, as with the election lie, you can get mad at the people who believe the lies, but the villains are the liars. I watched the entire speech. In my opinion, he wasn't shaming he wasn't scolding. He was being honest. That's it. Well, all of a sudden, as soon as he said something true and accurate and factual, all of a sudden, everybody's a snowflake. The right-wingers melt down and the liberal media, which has backed Biden to the hilt every time he does something wrong, and they're like, oh, what about the feelings of Alex Jones viewers? Oh, you're never going to convince the Alex Jones viewer anyway. Now, it is true. I do have more sympathy for the people getting lied to than I do for the, you know, people who are lying. Of course. But I'm sure Biden agrees with that as well. All he was doing in that speech was being honest. Hey, guys, just so you know, we gave you a really long time here. Um, The vaccine is safe. The vaccine is effective. The vaccine has saved. There was a report that came out over 200,000 lives have already been saved by the vaccine. Not a surprise, because how many lives have been saved by the polio vaccine? and the smallpox vaccine, and measles, and mumps, and rubella. And we know that as a matter of fact. So, of course, it would be the same thing for the COVID vaccine. So all he's saying is, hey, guys, this is safe, this is effective, this works. This isn't just about you individually. This is about the community and the collective and everybody's health. And so I'm going to give you the option, either vaccine or get a test every week. But there you have it again. Jake Tapper is doing the same thing that conservative media is doing. 
uh, he's pretending like there isn't a choice, like there isn't an option. He's giving you an option. He just said, there's coercion and there's persuasion, and now Biden is doing coercion. It's not coercion to say, get the vaccine, but if you don't want to, you don't have to, here's another option for you. How is that coercion? On what planet is that coercion? Everybody's being dishonest. Everybody's being disingenuous. It's driving me absolutely crazy. He used a scolding tone. He didn't use a scolding tone. He was being honest with people. He was telling them the truth. And when he said, just so everybody understands, vaccinated Americans are sort of fed up now with the unvaccinated Americans because this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You have over 95% protection from hospitalization and death if you get the vaccine. So the hospitals absolutely are full of unvaccinated patients with COVID. Absolutely. There have been people who have died waiting for a bed for other procedures. Now, how are people going to react when 70% of the country has had at least one shot? How are they going to react when they look at that story? What are they going to do? What are they going to say? They're, everybody's thinking it. Everybody's looking at it going, that person should have got vaccinated, and that bed should have been available for the person who was in the hospital for the other reason. That's what they're thinking. And you know what? They're correct. And I don't care how much, oh, my feelings, oh, my feels. You hurt me personally and emotionally and psychologically by telling me accurate things. <laughs> I don't care about your feelings. I don't care. I don't care. There's all the evidence in the world is out there that explains in detail why this is the right way to go. We've covered the studies on this show. Go back and look at the secular talk segments on the vaccine. You know, I couldn't have been more clear. I showed you the graphs and the charts every step of the way. Hey, look, here's the, here's the hospitalization rate. Among the unvaccinated, it goes like this. Among the vaccinated, it goes like this. Game, set, match, son. Over. Done. Go, there was that great, uh, and usually I'm not a fan of Vox, but this was a rare instance where I think they did a great job. Vox had a great piece explaining why the vaccines are all massively effective. Did you know in the original trials with the original variants, not a single person was hospitalized or died after they had got vaccinated? That's for the, for the studies for the Pfizer one, the Moderna one, the AstraZeneca one, and the Johnson & Johnson one. Nobody was hospitalized, hospitalized and nobody died. Gee, I wonder if it works. I wonder if it works. And this is one of those things, this isn't partisan. Donald Trump did Operation Warp Speed. Donald Trump cut cut a lot of the red tape in order to get this thing done and streamlined. For all the Trump supporters out there, take yes for an answer. Own the giant W for Donald. What are you doing? Look at what went on. Look at the evidence. Look at the data. Look at the facts. It's going to help you. It's going to be good. I promise you. And you know what? If at the end of the day you still don't want to get the vaccine, fine. But take a test once a week. That's it. That's it. And all the, everybody's so hyperbolic and annoying. Coercion and persuasion. He's now doing coercion and not persuasion. <laughs> he's being honest with people, and he's giving them a very fair, reasonable, open-minded choice. I'll say it one more time. If Joe Biden came out and said, I am making everybody get the vaccine, it's just a national mandate, flat national mandate, I would oppose it. I think that goes too far. I don't think the same government that did Japanese internment, nuked civilians, did a Native American genocide, did torture, Guantanamo Bay, extraordinary rendition, got rid of due process and habeas corpus, spied on all Americans with the NSA, lied us into multiple wars. I don't think that that government, totally bought and owned by corporations, has earned our trust. 
I don't think they've earned our trust. So if they said, everybody's got to take the vaccine, I'd say, eh, too far, can't do that, shouldn't be able to do that. Same government that did the Tuskegee experiments are going to be looking out for everybody's health. It's absurd. You have to give people the wiggle room to say, I don't want to do it. But that's what Biden did, so I support him. As I said a million times, this is a rare instance where this is actually correct. The vaccine actually works. It helps. And this is a rare instance where the government actually is looking out for you. Just like with seatbelts. How many lives have seatbelts saved? The government did seatbelts. Were they wrong doing that? No, they were right doing that. So this is something that's going to save you. This is something that's going to help you. So the default should be you're getting the vaccine. You should get the vaccine. But if you want to wiggle out of it, fine. We just got to put a few roadblocks in your way to let you know it's going to be a little bit of work to get out of the way. Same way when you send your kid to public school, they say you have to have vaccinations for measles and mumps and rubella and smallpox and polio and all these different things. So does your kid have to get the vaccine? No. But if they want to go to the public school, they have to. So maybe you have to homeschool them if, uh, if you don't want them getting the vaccine. I think that's a fair trade-off. I do. Okay, you don't want the kid to get the vaccine? Fine. It can be a little more difficult for you. You're going to have to homeschool them. But you have the freedom to choose that if you want to choose that. Same thing with this. You don't want to get the vaccine? Fine. But you're going to have to take a test every week. You're going to have to take a test every week. And do I feel bad about that? No, I think it's a wonderful thing. I take joy in the tiny hurdles we put in your way if you don't want to be a responsible citizen and care about the collective and communal good. I take joy in that. Sorry. Actually, no, I'm not at all. Not even a little bit. I'm correct to feel this way. So anyway, he couldn't have been more reasonable. He couldn't have been more honest and straightforward. And even liberal elite media, who usually have his back every time he does something wrong, they turn on him. He's using a scolding tone. He's using coercion and persuasion. He's using coercion instead of persuasion. This is the first time ever that uh, CNN has been on the side of the Alex Jones viewer, you know, all of a sudden they care deeply about the fifis of conservative fringe extremists. <laughs> and by the way, some, some on the left. He's right. RFK Jr. is a notorious um, anti-vaxxer and he's on the left. And th- there's, there are some. I mean, listen, I, in my opinion, the, the instinct on the left to be anti-vax, I get where it comes from. Everybody correctly points out that Big Pharma is corrupt, and they bought the government, and they're greedy, and all they care about is endless profit, and they don't give a shit about you. All that is true. That's all true. But antibiotics still work. So Big Pharma sucks, but they also make antibiotics, which work. Like it, Both of those things can be true at the same time. And that's where people struggle. They feel like, well, if Big Pharma is bad, then everything they do must be bad by definition. They, you know, they make all the drugs, and there's somebody out there who's been taking a drug that prevents them from getting a seizure or prevents them from getting a heart attack or helps treat illness X, Y, or Z. And Big Pharma can suck and be greedy and be terrible um, and be corrupt, but also that medicine is saving lives. Both of those things are true. And so that's how I've always felt in regards to vaccines. It's easy to let your skepticism turn to cynicism, and then you think everything from the, that portion of society is wrong and is not helpful. And that's just not true. And oftentimes the people on the left who are against um, even basic big pharma drugs and medicine, they, they're all in on like alternative medicine, which there's a reason why they call alternative medicine alternative. It didn't make the cut to be 
medicine medicine. So there's even less evidence and less data to show that the alternative stuff is correct. That same skepticism you use when it comes to big pharma, use that same skepticism when it comes to alternative medicine. Make sure that the shit works. Make sure that it's real. Because most of the stuff is not. It's bullshit. And they're lying to you. We covered a story on this show where supplements that you would get at Vitamin Shop or GNC or wherever, the overwhelming majority of the supplements don't even have the shit it says on the label in it. It's like rice powder and soy powder. They just put bullshit in there, and it's all the placebo effect. It's that. So just use your brain. For the love of God, use your brain. And from the, the studies I've seen on the vaccine, safe, effective, works. Obviously worked better with the alpha variant, but with the delta variant still working, uh, at least in the most important way, which is protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So Biden's correct. The liberal media turned on him. Conservatives are still beating him up. But I couldn't have imagined a more reasonable policy. Get vaccinated or take a test. It's not that difficult. All right, next. We are off this topic. So we had the anniversary of 9-11 the other day, and George W. Bush, of all people, gave a speech at an event for this. There's a scandal that came about as a result of this. I mean, the whole thing should be a scandal. He's the last person that any of us should want to hear from in this situation. But um, he came out and compared the 9-11 terrorists to the January 6th rioters. Take a look, and then we'll discuss further. obvious point people are making is like, well, hold on, that's unfair. Tally up the body count between what the 9-11 terrorists did and what happened on January 6th. And it's just unfair. One group is more violent. They're actively trying to do harm. One group thinks they're saving the country or whatever. Um, I'm not really that triggered by uh, the comparison. The part of this that angers me massively is that he's calling out extremists. And, dude, you are the extremist. You are the violent extremist. This is the president that did the torture. We had Guantanamo Bay. We had Abu Ghraib. We had him and Dick Cheney and all the neocons in the administration bend over backwards, search for a legal rationale to use the same kind of torture that, was, that we learned from communist Chinese manifestos from decades before. I mean, we put Japanese soldiers to death for, in World War II doing this torture tactics to our guys. Now we're doing it 
to people, many of them, by the way, innocent. Many of the people in Guantanamo Bay, who we rounded up and locked up, we had cut deals with warlords from Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they sent us people who they said were al-Qaeda. They weren't. It was just their enemies on the ground there. And we locked them up. No due process, no habeas corpus. And we ended up torturing a lot of innocent people, including a German citizen named Marat Kurnaz. So you are the extremist. You ripped up the Constitution in response to 9-11. You did torture. You did NSA spying. Clear violation of the protection from unreasonable search and seizure that Americans have. You did illegal wars, illegal and offensive wars against a country that didn't attack us. Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11. He didn't even have the weapons of mass destruction. He wasn't a threat to us. And you invaded, you overthrew the government, you destroyed a region of the world, you occupied it. Minimum hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died over there. Thousands of our soldiers died. Nobody who was there on January 6th could do one one-hundredth the amount of damage that George W. Bush has done to the world and to this country. That's what pisses me off about this. That's what pisses me off about this. Not to say I don't really have sympathy for the people who stormed the Capitol. I don't really have sympathy for the people who are still convinced, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that Donald Trump won the election or whatever. People who are authoritarian, where if they could press a button and put Trump back in office, they absolutely would. I don't have sympathy for those people. But I care about the truth. And the truth is, this guy calling out extremists is absurd. You are the extremist. Look in the mirror. You belong in the Hague. You do. The Geneva Convention were upheld. If the Nuremberg Tribunal were upheld, you'd be in in a cage. So would Dick Cheney. So would Donald Rumsfeld. So would Paul Wolfowitz. So would all the thought leaders who drafted the plans for the war, the project for a new American century like Bill Kristol. You guys are the imperialists and the terrorists and the menace to the world. You are. So that's what gets under my skin about this. You know, I'm not, I'm not triggered by this in the sense that, like, I must defend the January 6th people and stop the comparison to 9-11 terrorists. Because the fact of the matter is, yeah, it's different degrees of violence, but if you believe in offensive violence over political or religious reasons, that's the definition of a terrorist. So depends how strictly you want to apply that and what counts as political violence and all that. I get that. There is more nuance in the conversation, but generally speaking, does it all fall under that banner? Yeah. But you know who else falls under that banner? George W. Bush, even more so than the January 6th rioters, for sure. Because he did political violence. He did state terrorism. For some reason, the media never views U.S. state terrorism as terrorism. Because we're the good guys by definition, and our intentions are pure, and we mean well. So when we massacre civilians, it's okay. Childish thinking, genuinely childish thinking. And, of course, we don't have pure intentions. We're not, we don't care about freedom and democracy and human rights and justice. It was never about that, ever, ever. Same instincts, same motivations as any authoritarian, imperialistic nation in history. So this guy led the empire with blood on its, on its hands, and he's blaming others. Little too late to care about violent extremists, George W. Bush. You are the violent extremist. Dick Cheney is the violent extremist. And, you know, deep down, he might know this. He might know this. But guess what? Of course, liberals were swooning over Bush's speech here because they just don't, they don't care as much about the policy damage that Bush did because time heals all wounds to these people. So they just think Trump is bad and Trump was the more recent one. 
I assure you, you can really, really hate both George W. Bush and Donald Trump without downplaying the heart of either one of them. Give it a try. Okay, next. Time for Michael Moore. So Michael Moore said something controversial uh, on the anniversary of 9-11 or around 9-11. He said that in the end, bin Laden won. Let's see him dive into more specifics about this claim. Take a look. Might have seen your quote saying that in the end, Osama bin Laden won. What did you mean by it? I mean that um, his attack, their attack on 9-11 on this country, um, I don't know how they could have guessed that uh, we would stay in this war for 20 years, that they would, uh, that we would spend $300 million a day on years. Was, was he some sort of mad genius, Osama bin Laden, that he figured out that we would uh, take away our own democratic rights, our constitutional rights, the Hague Create Act, uh, create a surveillance state where there's a camera on every other corner in this country spying on each other, uh, that, that we did not. We spent all of our time focused on the war on terror and the money on this that could have been used on our own people. We're not better off 20 years later. We've, we've created a, a, a sort of a self-destruction. Now, now we are at war with ourselves. We, we have this incredible division that has turned violent. I mean, he, uh, he must be smiling from his grave wherever it is because what they couldn't do to us, we decided to do to ourselves. And when George Bush used to brag about or say that, you know, we need to fight him, we need to uh, fight him over there so we don't have to fight him here. And what actually ended up happening was, yeah, we went over there to, to fight them, but Bin Laden, they couldn't ever have attacked us or invaded our country and taken us over. In order to kill us, they had to, they had to sucker us into coming over there and putting our young men and women, our, our troops, on, on, the, on the sacrificial altar and, and, and at the same time allow our country to become what it's become in these 20 years. It's so sad. And, it's, it, 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 and so I said, you know, in a sense, uh, he may have lost the battle. He may have lost his life, Al-Qaeda broken up. But in the end, in a strange, sad sort of way, he won because we've allowed this to happen to ourselves. And shame on us for that. We should, I hope the lesson of this is that we never get ourselves into war again like this. And, Brian, you know, 20 years ago, I was pretty much alone. Most liberals were all behind the war. Bush had a 70% approval rating. It was myself. It was Congresswoman Barbara Lee from Oakland, California, who said, no, no, do not. We are not to go to Afghanistan. We are not to invade that country. Uh, this will be a quagmire. And we were, we were pretty much shot down uh, by our fellow Americans that did not want to hear anything like this. And, um, and 
you know, are we safer? Are we, are, the real homeland security should be about how we take care of each other and how we spend our money for each other um, and not on, on, a, on a war that may have seemed right to some people at the time. Let's go get him. I mean, he is a mass murderer, Osama bin Laden. But by the time we really organized ourselves to do that in October and November, uh, he had pretty much skedaddled. He was gone. He was out of the country, and, and we didn't have to stay. He left, and we stayed for 20 years. So those are interesting comments. Um, I think he's, in, in certain ways he's right, uh, but in other ways I think he misses some important nuance. So what really was the goal of bin Laden? I mean, his grandest ambitions, it would be global jihad. Global jihad. So think of a world where um, you have Al-Qaedistan is the world's sole superpower. And every, everybody around the world is living under Sharia. And all Americans are either killed or converted. I, I honestly think that's the real idea behind global jihad to a true believer. Now, oftentimes you're dealing with people who aren't necessarily true believers and they claim to be true believers, but for the real hardcore fundamentalist, drank the Kool-Aid, I'm all in, the ISIS fighters, many in Al-Qaeda, yeah, that's what they wanted. Global jihad, all Americans killed or converted, the world killed or converted, we're the superpower now, we're in charge. So on that front, of course he didn't win. Not even close to winning, uh, and that's obvious. That's clear. If anything, the Taliban is way closer than al-Qaeda ever got. ISIS got closer. Now they've been more or less defeated, but ISIS got closer than al-Qaeda ever got. Um, so in one sense, no, he didn't get anywhere near to, to the ultimate goal that he wanted. However, um, if you lower the bar quite a bit, you lower it significantly and say, well, one of his goals, and I think he even voiced this at times, one of his goals is to bait the U.S. into destroying itself yeah, there's, there's a case to be made there. Because if you claim that in the same way that he wants to base um, a system of governance on the Quran, if the idea is the Constitution is this almost sacred document to the U.S., and he wants to destroy our way of life, well, yeah, absolutely. That Constitution was ripped up, spit at, pissed on, and shit on especially over the course of the War on Terror. Now, before it was no cakewalk either, but really ramped up in the War on Terror because no more due process, no more habeas corpus, no more protection from unreasonable search and seizure with the NSA spying on everybody illegally. Um, no more protection from cruel and unusual punishment, the way that we treat people and, you know, the way we had Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and doing torture and illegal wars. And so... American values, as they are on paper, we never really lived up to them. We can't say we're a country that cares about equality when we're founded on slavery and Native American genocide. We never really lived up to them. But boy, oh boy, did we make it even worse than it was before with the war on terror and with that era. Because we did. We didn't even have the nominal argument anymore of we care about freedom, we care about democracy, we care about human rights, and that's what we do around the world, when we are violating every single human right known to man. And that's what we're doing. That's the whole point of the neocons. That's the whole point of Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. That was their whole existence was that. Under the guise of we have to protect Americans, it's rip up our way of life a thousand different ways. So the argument is you bait the U.S. into destroying itself, both in terms of values, but also 
in terms of the empire. Yeah, $300 million a day in Afghanistan is insane. Um, there's a new report that just came out from Brown University. I was just looking at it um, over the last hour. They say in total $14 trillion was wasted in the war on terror. And now, I've read previously seven, so half that. But whether it's seven or 14, for the love of God, I, I wince at the thought of what could that have gone to here? Roads, bridges, the number one infrastructure in the world, jobs program, health care for everybody, education, including higher education for everybody. Think of everything you could have gone to. So, yeah, we destroy ourselves in terms of the country itself, and we destroyed uh, whatever values we had to the extent we ever lived up to them, which we didn't, but we made it even worse. So, I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I think he overstates the case because he doesn't even talk about, ultimately he probably won a global jihad and all people killed or converted. Um, that's their real pipe dream. So he didn't talk about that, and he's wrong not to talk about that, but that the lower bars, yeah. Yeah, Bin Laden did sort of get what he wanted. So there you have it. It's a sad, sad reality, but no more offensive wars, man. No more illegal and offensive wars. We only need to do wars for self-defense, imminent self-defense. If you said after 9-11, we're going to do the most targeted program of all time, and we'll have SEAL Team 6 put a bullet in Osama bin Laden's forehead, and you go through Congress, get the Declaration of War to do exactly that, you would have gotten approval for that. But that's not what they did. They did over 20-year occupation of Iraq, 20-year occupation of Afghanistan. Well, it couldn't have been 20 years for Iraq because that would be 2023 by the time it's 20 years, but we'll get there. Uh, so multiple decade illegal occupation, exploitation, imperialism, endless war, war profiteering, everything you can imagine, war crimes, couldn't have gone any worse. That's for damn sure. Okay. All right, let's get to... So, here we go. Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin are starting to go at it a little bit publicly. We have the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. We're calling it the human infrastructure bill. And um, Bernie absolutely torched Joe Manchin on one of the Sunday shows over this issue. Take a look. Here's a tweet last night from Senator Bernie Sanders. It's coming up on the program next. We're not going to build bridges just so sure. people can live under them. No infrastructure bill without the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Are you concerned we're going to end up with nothing? I just respectfully disagree with Bernie. I've never seen us in legislation. I never thought the purposes of, of, of our of the progress that we make in legislation was basically hold one hostage over the other. Uh, you have a bipartisan bill in the most toxic atmosphere that we've ever had politically. The president has pushed on this, and he says, we're going to do this bipartisan. It's in the House right now. We could pass that one, and we can still go on to reconciliation. We can debate it. We can discuss it. We can have hearings on it. Make sure whatever we do, we do it and do it right and don't put more out there that's not needed or basically put ourselves further in debt. We can have those discussions, but why would you hold something that's as needed as this as far as the hard infrastructure it's been basically neglected for 30 years and just sit back and say, well, we can't do that. 
If you don't need bridges fixed or roads fixed in your state, I do in West Virginia. I need Internet in West Virginia. I've got water and sewage problems. I've got all the problems that we have addressed in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and that's the one that has the emergency. Uh, you just heard Senator Manchin uh, right there. He said he disrespectfully disagrees. We shouldn't hold this bipartisan infrastructure package hostage after the reconciliation bill. Well, I think maybe the converse is true, that maybe Senator Manchin is holding the reconciliation bill hostage. Uh, as you know, uh, George, from day one, the President of the United States, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, Majority Leader Schumer, have made it clear we're going down a two-track approach. Both bills are going together. I happen to think that Joe Manchin is right. Physical infrastructure is terribly important. But I happen to think that the needs of the human beings of our country, working families, the children, the elderly, the poor, are even more important. And we can and must do both. Look, everybody in America, whether you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, understands that for the last many years, the very richest people in this country and the largest corporations have done phenomenally well, while the working class and the middle class of this country struggle, and we got close to 600 million people sleeping out on the streets. Elderly people in America can't afford to put dentures into their mouth. They have no teeth in their mouth in some cases. Can't afford hearing aids. Can't afford eyeglasses. Working families cannot afford childcare for their kids. Young people cannot afford to go to college. And then on top of all of that, the scientific community is telling us that we're looking at a cataclysmic crisis in terms of climate. Damn, son. So the, the most hardcore line that we just saw there was when Bernie said, holding it hostage? I'm not holding it hostage. You're holding it hostage. This was the deal. The deal was you'll get the traditional infrastructure bill if we get the human infrastructure bill, which, by the way, is a goofy-sounding name. But honestly, Bernie's right. The stuff that's in... The human infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill, is even more important than the stuff that's in the traditional infrastructure bill. Guys, yeah, there's, there's roads, there's bridges, uh, Internet, all sorts of stuff in the original bill. It's an important bill. It's a good bill. There's some parts of it that are so-so, but the bill is a good bill. The second bill is even better. Bernie's bill is even better. And Joe Manchin, the fundamental lie of what Joe Manchin is saying there is he's arguing – well, the first one is so necessary, so that's why we have to do it, whereas the second one is really a choice. No, it's all super necessary. What's in the second one? Child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave and medical leave, tuition-free college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision under a Medicare expansion. You're telling me that's not important, Joe Manchin? That's as important as it gets. Housing, home care climate change money, um, they lower the Medicare age in it. There's an Obamacare expansion in it. Uh, and then also the revenue would be beefed up IRS, IRS tax enforcement, taxing the rich, taxing corporations, fees on polluters. That, this, all this stuff is so important. It's as important as it gets. And I think Bernie has a case. This is more important than even the traditional infrastructure stuff. By the way, the original bill – What's the original uh, one, like $1 trillion or sh It's shy of $2 trillion for sure. Guys, we need like almost $5 trillion just to update everything. 
not, not even talking about, like, let's improve it, just to update it. We need, like, $5 trillion. So Manchin, the corporate Democrat he is, he loves the watered-down bill, but the bill that actually really substantively changes so many lives for the better, he acts like this one uh, isn't necessary and isn't needed. There's never been a more needed bill than this. This is the biggest transformation of the U.S. economy since the New Deal. And that's even Professor Richard Wolff acknowledges that. Now, he says it's still not nearly enough. He's correct. But God damn it, this is super important. And Joe Manchin, why are you holding it? You're the one holding it hostage. You're holding it hostage. Vote for the bill. You want the traditional infrastructure bill? Vote for the reconciliation bill. That's all. By the way, go look at the polls. This bill is overwhelmingly popular. Even the people of West Virginia support the provisions of this bill. That's for damn sure. So when he talks about, I'm just a West Virginia Democrat, and that's why I can't support it. Nonsense. West Virginia supports this. You don't want to support it because of your donors. That's why you don't want to support it, because you're corrupt, because you take money from billionaires, and you take money from corporations, and you take money from PACs, and you want to represent them. That's what you want to do. So this is a little too kind to the peasants, a little too kind to the regular people. So really, he's a corporate Democrat. He's an elitist Democrat. The opposite of his, like, I'm a blue-collar kind of guy. Nonsense. Nonsense. So Bernie absolutely obliterated him there. He ran circles around him, and he kept it real. He said, me? I'm not holding anything hostage. This was the original deal. You're holding it hostage. That's damn right. So the advice, because Manchin's now going around saying, I'm not for the 3.5 trillion. I'm not going to do it. I'm telling you, man, Biden better get out that whooping stick, son. He's the only person who can move him on this. I told you, if I'm Joe Biden, I call Joe Manchin into my office, and I make him an offer he can't refuse. If you vote for this $3.5 trillion deal, if you vote for this, I'll put another military base, base in West Virginia. I'll give you more infrastructure money. I'll put whoever you want. You want to be in my administration? You let me know what position you want. I'll hook you up, dog. If you don't vote for this, I'm going to be your worst enemy. I talked to my Department of Justice, and Merrick Garland is going to look into your daughter over the EpiPen scandal, because we just got the email. She was caught red-handed, colluding with Pfizer to price gouge and come up with a rationale to charge people out the wazoo for their EpiPens. Criminal conduct. What if we investigate her? What if we investigate your wife, Joe, who was also involved in this scandal, because she works with schools, and she tried to stock up more on those EpiPens that you guys were price gouging about. You are the mansion crime family. You think I don't see this? You think I don't know this? What if Merrick Garland investigated you guys, and what if you guys ended up going to prison? What about that? Oh, you don't want that. Oh, okay, well, then I guess you better get a second military base in West Virginia, and I guess you better get somebody in my administration from your family, and I guess you better get more infrastructure money to West Virginia, and you better vote for the $3.5 trillion bill. Now, when push comes comes to shove, maybe that won't even be enough. Why? Because there's not as much dirt on the other seven or eight gaggle of idiot corporate Democrats who are probably going to vote against this, so you need to find a way to convince them all. Bring them into your office one by one, find out what they want, uh, find out some leverage you could hold over them, and really at the end of the day, we'd be lucky to get $2 trillion, to be honest. But like I told you guys, my line is $2 trillion or more. Right now, Joe managed to talk about $1 or $1.5 trillion for um, a reconciliation bill. No. Voting no, hard no on that got to be $2 trillion or more, and the provisions have to be good. That's my golden rule. $2 trillion or more is my line, and that's it. Now, some people might disagree with where I draw my line, but um, you're not going to get the $3.5 trillion. The whole point of the reconciliation process is to negotiate further.
But I would still use those hardball tactics if I was Joe Biden and I'd get a $2 trillion or more bill out of it, okay? And um, Bernie's doing the right thing. Bernie's saying the right things publicly. And they better be working behind the scenes double time to get Manchin to buckle. Because if they're not, I mean, just the total and utter destruction of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. I mean, they're already screwed in the midterms because they didn't do election reform. But this would make it on another level. Okay, next. So Nancy Pelosi uh, made one of the comments that she's made in the past. It always makes the left face palm. Let's see what she had to say. I say to my Republican friends, take back your party. The country needs a big, strong Republican party. Here I say that as a leader in the Democratic Party, but we need a big, strong Republican party. You've done so much for our country. Take pride and take back your party. Don't have it be a cult of personality on the extreme, extreme, extreme right. This isn't about liberal or conservative. It's about radical uh, should we say, they don't believe in governance. They see, for example, with, with COVID, if the science says we should be wearing masks and government says you must wear a mask inside, they'll, they'll say we're anti-science, we don't believe the science to begin with, and we certainly are not going to obey the governance that requires that. That's one example. Of course, we go through this with climate change and so many other areas of denial. That they're in. So, again, as nonpartisan as I can be, take back the Republican Party, Republicans, take back your party, which has done so much for our country, and we can compete in the world of ideas about what the role of government is. We have confidence in our um, police. The question for Nancy Pelosi is take back the party to when exactly? Roll back the clock to when exactly? I'm, I'm asking this sincerely. I'm genuinely curious. When? What year? You want to go back to Reagan? How, you know, Reagan massively cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations and deregulated everything in sight. And, of course, that deregulation helped lead to an economic crash right when Reagan left office, let Wall Street run wild. Is that when you want to go back to? I mean, honestly, it sounds to me like she's just saying go back to pre-Trump, as if the Republican Party was serious and intelligent and on point pre-Trump. Pre-Trump, just as bad, if not worse. You had George W. Bush crash the economy, again, with his deregulation and tax cuts for the rich. Had the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession under him. Did illegal and offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. Ripped up the Constitution. NSA spying on everybody, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, the list goes on and on. So go back to when, go back to when, go back to when, Nancy, because they were always doing the Southern strategy. They were always doing the Southern strategy from the 60s and onwards. So at what point 
Is there a time in 1989, 1996? When are you talking about? In the 90s, it was dominated by who? Newt Gingrich on the right. Newt Gingrich was as bad as it gets. So when do you want to go back to? I mean, I guess she can make a stretch of an argument to Lincoln because he freed the slaves, but it doesn't seem like that's what she's alluding to here. So she says, take back your, uh, your party. The country needs a big, strong Republican Party. Take back your party to when? Pre-Trump cause, or, or during Trump? Cause, or excuse me, pre-Trump when it was George W. Bush? Because that would be terrible. Just as bad, if not worse, than, than Trump. Um, this is why I think she's talking about just prior to Trump, because she says, don't have it be a cult of personality. Because it is a cult of personality under Trump, largely, and the numbers bear that out. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, yeah, but they were still terrible. The Republican Party before Trump was terrible. Now, and under Trump was terrible, too. Now, I'm not condemning your average one-of-the-mill Republican voter because oftentimes they're the brainwashed ones and they're sort of victims of a party that every now and then pretends to care about them but doesn't. I'm talking about the actual party itself, the apparatus. Um, She says, this isn't about liberal or conservative. It's about a radical lack of governance. Then she talks about how they're anti-science when it comes to masks, when it comes to climate change. All that is true, but it wouldn't have been different at all under George W. Bush. It wouldn't have been different. It would have been the same shit. They were I mean, George W. Bush appointed some Exxon guy or some big oil guy for the head of the FDA. Not, excuse me, not FDA. Was it FDA? I don't remember if it was FDA, but he had to regulate polluters. He had big oil people. So they're also anti-science. They were, their whole thing was they were pushing creationism in the classrooms, or at least intelligent design and saying you got to teach that alongside evolution. So this rose-colored glasses for the past that didn't exist, God, it's annoying. And the fact of the matter is the reason why Nancy Pelosi, here's the most important point, guys. The reason why Nancy Pelosi wants that is because she is sort of herself a moderate Republican, and that's how she views herself. She views herself as like a centrist or maybe center-left, but ultimately she really is moderately conservative, if anything. So that's why she feels like, go back to the traditional Republicans who were kind and polite publicly but still wrong about everything. Because Nancy's wrong about a hell of a lot. There was a story that came out recently. I mean, her and her husband have made so much money. They're worth over like $100 million, and they've made so much money from investments and whatnot while she's been in office. It's really disgusting. It's really corrupt. But, of course, she sees nothing wrong with it. So she wants to go back to the good old bipartisan uh, corrupt games that go on there because that's, that's the Washington she knows, and that's the Washington she loves. And, you know... The hardcore cult of personality people, the Trump people, they're a little bit too impolite for her tastes. So that's what it really boils down to. For the love of God, Nancy, stop saying this. This sounds really dumb because it is. Okay, next. Do one more, then I'll take a quick break. So Andrew Yang, of course, ran for president. Um, He developed quite a following, although he didn't really perform in the election itself, in the primary election when he ran for president. Um, But there were a number of strong Yang supporters online. I thought he was an interesting character because there's a number of things, a number of policies he championed that were even, one could argue, to the left of Bernie. Like when he said he wanted to decriminalize all drugs, not just legalize weed. I thought that was a brave stand, and I really commend him for that. Um, I liked how aggressive he advocated for UBI. Now, 
even though he had those moments of like, damn, he's freaking it on specific policies, there were always facepalm-worthy moments, of course. So one of them was, there was a red flag, was he yeah, it's actually not for a $15 minimum wage. Um, I totally disagree with him on that. And he always had cringe takes on foreign policy, specifically on Israel-Palestine. Now, when he ran for mayor of New York, it got even worse. He had terrible things he said about BDS, terrible things he said about Israel and Palestine. Um, and you just got the sense, especially when he was running for mayor of New York, he was listening too much to the, the official advisors. And he hired a lot of people who I think previously worked on, like, Bloomberg's campaign or something. So really the worst people in the world, the dumbest people in the world, overpaid consultants who don't know what the fuck they're talking about, but he brought them on. And it, you got the sense he started trying to play the game because he was viewed as the front runner, and the poll showed he was the front runner. So now he's like, now I've got to do everything right and proper. And then he ran his campaign into the ground. And, I mean, he really flamed out. So we had him on Crystal Kyle and Friends, and we were very um, – on the policies he, he's good on, we gave him the credit he deserved. Uh, mainstream media really treat him unfairly as well, especially back when he ran for president. But then on the policies where he's bad, we really pressed him. Well, now Andrew Yang is doing something new. Take a look at this. So this is from Politico. They say, Andrew Yang to launch a third party. Presidential candidate turned New York City mayoral hopeful is no longer identifying as a Democrat. So what's my prediction on this third party? This is not going to take a genius to see. This thing is going to crash and burn in a phenomenal way. And this is coming from somebody I like Andrew personally. I do. Um, Like I said, I think he took a lot of brave stands on specific policies. But in other ways, he's atrocious. On Israel-Palestine, he's atrocious. Um, And there's not enough there there to build a party. And you guys know my take on third parties in general when it comes to the way our system works in the U.S. Unless you put into place ranked choice voting first, this is all a waste of time whether it's Andrew Yang launching a third party, whether if Bernie launched a third party. If you don't change the way our system works to rank choice voting, you're literally just doing self-disenfranchisement. Because all that's going to happen is even, even a third party that does every single thing right in every imaginable way is only going to get, in a presidential election, like 10% of the vote. You can't win presidential election on 10% of the vote. You just can't do it. You can't do it. So ultimately what you're saying is let's start this thing to not win. I don't do that. I play to win. I don't, I don't like moral victory bullshit things like, oh, we built something quickly. Okay, but you didn't win. And what was the other results of what else happened? What was the backlash effect as a result of what you guys did here? Now you could tell me, Kyle, this is a, it's really a 50-year project to build a third party. Fair enough. That probably is true. You probably maybe if you did everything exactly right within 50 years, you can get something accomplished on that front. We don't have 50 years to wait. We just don't. So I always found it weird when people who in every respect in their lives are hardcore realists. Hey, I'm a truth teller. I care about the facts. I care about reality. And, you know, I don't have any magical beliefs. But on this front, when it comes to third-party politics, people just have very magical beliefs. They think some sort of miracle can be pulled off, and all of a sudden you could have you know, a third-party presidential candidate or an independent presidential candidate win an election 
and implement all the change that we need. When in reality, even if you did get a third party president elected, you would need to do coalition building with the parties that are more nominally in agreement with you in order to get anything done anyway. So even in a situation where you have a third party that is successful, and let's say a president gets elected of a third party or uh, an independent, they would have to form governing coalitions with people who we hate in the Democratic Party. So even then, you've got to work with these people. So there's just something about it that is just incredibly unserious. And again, I think the best term for it is self-disenfranchisement. So what Andrew Yang is doing here is self-disenfranchisement. What he's doing here is he's saying, let me launch this thing. Almost, hey, you have to know it's going to flame out. Because what are you going to build it on? Andrew Yang is an interesting mix of like some progressive beliefs. He calls himself like a humanitarian capitalist or something like that. Um, and then, but he's also got some libertarian beliefs. Like one of the things I questioned him on when he was on Crystal Kyle and Friends is one of the things he proposed was eliminating um, having sunset clauses on like all regulations. So only for five or ten years, if the government passes a regulation, there's a sunset clause in five or ten years, so then it ha you have to re-vote on that regulation. But I just think that's a terrible idea because some things should be in there permanently. Clean water protections, you name it. Certain Wall Street regulations should be in there permanently. You shouldn't have to revisit it every five or ten years, especially with the corruption in our government, what's going to happen is they're going to allow Wall Street to get away with whatever they want. They're just going to wait for the sunset clause to run out, and then they'll just do whatever the fuck they want. So he doesn't have the ideology to sustain a third party, even though in many ways he's interesting and good, because in many ways he's bad. Um, but even if he did have the ideology to sustain a third party, you're doing self-disenfranchisement, and it's almost guaranteed to flame out. Even if you do everything right, you're not going to win. So... Just here's what I would plead with people who are really all in on a third-party approach. Here's what I would plead with you to do. I'm not going to stand in your way. I'm not going to argue against you. If you support the ideas that I support, I wish you luck. I genuinely do, whether it's the Green Party or the People's Party or whoever. Um, but for the love of God, all of your effort up front should be ranked choice voting. We've got to get to ranked choice voting. So all of the effort going into all the different third-party attempts, whether it's a Socialist Party or People's Party or Green Party or whoever, first and foremost, all of your efforts should be to come together, work on getting ranked choice voting, so that then at least you're in the conversation and you're in the game and it's not just fake. Because until you get ranked choice voting, it's fake. Because it's always going to be the Democrat or the Republican winning. Always, 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 always. It's like saying we have Coke and Pepsi but RC Cola is going to win out of nowhere. That's not going to happen. It's going to be Coke or Pepsi. It's going to be Democrat or Republican. They're going to win. So first and foremost, get ranked choice voting done. And then once you get ranked choice voting done, then you're not doing self-disenfranchisement as much. Because then you could say, here's the way I rank my candidates. I want whoever my candidate is for the Green Party or the People's Party or Andrew Yang's party or some Socialist Party. I want that. They're my number one option. And underneath that, I want whatever, Bernie, if Bernie was running underneath that, whatever it might be. So you have to do ranked choice voting first. If you're not doing ranked choice voting first, you are doing self-disenfranchisement. Absolutely. In other words, you're wasting all of this energy, which could be used for productive ends. You're wasting all this energy, which could be used for a general strike or specific issue advocacy um, or direct ballot initiatives or union organizing. You're wasting all of this energy, which is productive energy, and funneling it, funneling it into something that's going to, even if everything goes right, you're going to top out at 10% and never win anything ever. So for the love of God, focus first and foremost on ranked choice voting. Now, I don't know. Maybe Andrew Yang will do that. And if he does, hey, more power to you, man. Go right ahead. But 
ultimately, even though in many ways I like Andrew, there's enough areas where I have massive disagreements where I really have no interest in his third party. Uh, if he gets ranked choice voting first, yeah, then I'll hear out the candidates and maybe there's one I agree with more or less. Um, but you've got to get ranked choice voting first, or this is a giant, colossal waste of time, and he's going to be massively embarrassed. You know, if, if you're in it to run every election, whether it's presidential election or for any other position, and you're, the best you could hope for is like 10%, why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your time? Don't you want to have a strategy that you could actually win? And if you get ranked choice voting, at least you're in the conversation. I still think you'll probably lose for about five decades, but at least you're in the conversation where it's not literally a total waste of time and self-disenfranchisement. So anyway, um, I'm a big fan of UBI. Andrew Yang likes UBI. I'm a big fan of drug decriminalization. I go even further, drug legalization, legal tax and regulate. Um, I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. He is too. But there's enough there with Israel-Palestine and some foreign policy stuff and, you know, some libertarian economic ideas that I'm not with him. But he is starting a third party. We don't know the exact core fundamental policy issues of it yet, but we'll talk about it when it comes out. But Yang is apparently going to try to embark on probably the single most difficult thing to do in politics, which is why until you get ranked choice voting, he's just self-disenfranchising. Okay, next. Actually, wait, let me take a quick break. When we come back, still got four amazing stories for you. AOC versus Manchin, new poll of Trump supporters, um, and Fox lets their hatred for workers show. Stay right there, y'all. We will be right back.
come back to me. Alright. Let's bring this bad boy home. Still got some great stories for y'all. Alright, let's go to the AOC one. So there's some public uh, bickering going on. Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders went back and forth on the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took a shot at Manchin on Twitter, and uh, Manchin was asked to respond to that on one of the Sunday shows, and he reduced himself to a bumbling fool. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said this about you in a tweet. Manchin has weekly huddles with Exxon and is one of many senators who gives lobbyists their pen to write so-called bipartisan fossil fuel bills. It's killing people. Sick of this bipartisan corruption that masquerades as clear-eyed moderation. That's your fellow Democrat. Well, is it true that you have weekly meetings with Exxon not. and other absolutely lobbyists for fossil fuels? No, they don't have weekly meetings. I don't, it's just false. I, I keep my door open for everybody. It's totally false. And, and those type of superlatives, it's just awful. Continue to divide, divide, divide. I don't know the young lady that well. I really don't. I've met her one time, I think, between sets here, but that's it. So we have not had any conversations. She's just speculating and saying things because she wants to She's not the only one. I'm sure you've heard. There are a number of your fellow Democrats who say that you're opposed to this because you're bought and paid for by I'm opposed to it. It makes no sense at all. I just gave you the facts. I've said this. You're entitled to your own facts. I mean, your own, uh, your own opinions. You're just not entitled to create your own facts to support it. And that's exactly what they're doing. Okay, Joe. Sure. So he says, oh, this bill makes no sense, which is why I'm against it. Really? It makes no sense to do a child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision added to Medicare under a Medicare expansion, housing, home care, climate change money, lower the Medicare age, Obamacare expansion, um, and to raise taxes on the wealthy and corporations and have fees on polluters. That doesn't make sense. That makes perfect sense, and all of those things poll very, very popular. Now, to the main issue here, I actually didn't look up. Let me see. I want to see Joe Manchin Weekly Meetings Exxon. Let's see what comes up when I Google that. Manchin denies meeting with fossil fuel lobbyists weekly, but... That's the title from Rolling Stone, but says, I keep my door open for everybody. That's what he said right there. Now, I'm not going to dive too much into uh, whether or not it's literally true. Oh, here we go. This is what the story is based on. July 1st, 2021, Exxon lobbyist brags about regular access to Joe Manchin. Wow. That's the title by Amanda Turkle. ExxonMobil says it has regular access to Joe Manchin and his staff, according to leaked comments by a senior lobbyist for the oil giant. Hmm. The remarks came from Keith McCoy, Exxon's senior director of federal relations in Washington. Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week. He is the kingmaker, and he's not shy about staking his claim early and completely changing the debate, McCoy said. So, looks like this article is what that's based on. We have reporting where somebody from Exxon says, I speak to his office every week. Now, I guess Joe could technically wiggle out of it and say, well, I personally don't talk to them every week, but your staff does, your office does, which I think counts. 
Now, furthermore, I uh, found an Open Secrets article, just to put this in perspective for you with the kind of person that we're dealing with. Open Secrets article back when he was running uh, for Senate again, and there was a, he was doing his primary campaign. Here's the Open Secrets article. Here's what they say. His primary campaign has already begun fundraising and clocked in with roughly $638,000 through the end of September. Much of that cash came from PACs affiliated with oil and natural gas companies, including Valero Energy Corporation, National Fuel Gas Company, and DTE Energy, which have long supported Manchin's political career. Since 2010, the American Gas Association's PAC has donated $15,000 to Manchin, according to the FEC. In the same time frame, ExxonMobil's corporate PAC contributed $12,500, and the American Petroleum Institute contributed $10,000. PACs and individuals affiliated with First Energy Corporation are together one of Manchin's biggest contributors, and have given the senator $147,950 since 2009. The American Chemistry Council, whose members include companies like Shell and Exxon, spent $200,000 to support Manchin in his 2018 campaign. You tell me who's right and who's wrong on this front. Manchin got caught red-handed, son, red-handed. And in order to try to get out of it, he says, oh, that's, you're being very mean, and oh, young lady, you better watch your... Guilty. Guilty. You take money from Big Oil, you do their bidding, and you got called out for it, and you had to play the decorum game. By the way, that's all they have when you catch them red-handed. Caught them dead to rights. All he had was... Young lady, the decorum, how dare you state the things I've actually done? I don't want to hear it, Joe. You are the problem. You are the problem. So shut up, fall in line, and vote for this bill, because we need this bill desperately. And again, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm holding over his head the fact that his daughter and his wife were just caught in this EpiPen price gouging scandal colluding with Big Pharma. They have the emails. We need to come up with a rationalization to increase the prices. They have the emails on her. I would investigate her. I'd try to put them in jail unless he votes for this bill. That's the kind of hardball I'd play. Okay, next. So there's a new poll that came out. And um, while we're all focusing on, you know, serious political issues and this reconciliation bill and war in Afghanistan, um, Donald Trump has still been doing Donald Trump things. And now the effects have fully taken hold. So take a look at this. New CNN poll, 59% of self-identified Republicans say believing that Donald Trump won the 2020 election is important to what being a Republican means to them. 59% of Republicans say, basically, you have to believe that Trump won the 2020 election in order to be a true Republican, in order to be a real Republican, in order to align with my values. That is absolutely psychotic, guys. So there there is a process of radicalization that's currently going on on the right that is astounding. Because I remember, so there was a story back when Obama was president. There was a story that 43% of Republicans thought Obama was like secretly Muslim. Um, So that number became a good number to sort of 
determine who the TFGs are. So you have 50% of the, roughly 50% of the country is like conservative or conservative leaning. Um, that's an oversimplification, but you get the point. And I don't know what percentage of the country are, is actually registered Republican. 30% maybe, something like that. Because there's plenty of non-voters and you know people who just don't engage in politics. So half of that 30% are insane, or 43% of that 30% block are insane. That's a good indication of who the TFGs are. That number is climbing and climbing and climbing. And now we're at the point where 59% of self-identified Republicans say that you have to believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election because that's important to what being a Republican means. So you have to believe something that is provably, verifiably incorrect, where all the evidence and the data and the information is on the other side of it. And only cranks are left pushing the argument that Trump won. You have to side with the fucking my pillow guy over every election expert in the country, over all the evidence. This is, a, this is a giant political problem. It's a huge political problem, especially because, guess what? This is now going to drive the elected Republicans to also become more and more insane. So everybody's going to have to pledge allegiance to Trump. Even the people who are running against him are going to have to, you know, give these mealy-mouthed answers as to what they think was the case with the 2020 election. Try to wiggle out of it, give a political answer, or just say flat out they think Trump won. Because what's going to happen is you're going to have this purge of the party, of the people who say that's not true. That's what's going to happen. So the 2024 Republican primary is going to be absolutely bonkers, son. It's going to be mental. And the thing that's so astounding is that none, none of their, like, red lines are on actual policy issues. Have you noticed that? The right-wing base? This is all culture war grievance nonsense and, like, the election being stolen from Trump. On the left, you see real litmus tests around things that matter. So, like, there's a portion of the left that's just, like, total red line. If you're not for Medicare for all, go fuck yourself. I get that. Makes sense. You know, we need Medicare for all. There's a pandemic. People are dying. Millions of people go bankrupt from not having health insurance. Um, tens of thousands die because they don't have basic health care. So, yeah, when people on the left say, that's my red line, I get it. This I don't get at all. This is, I fully bought into this fantasy world, this One America News and, and Newsmax and far-right Fox News fantasy world. And they're getting more and more extreme as time goes by. I don't know how to save these people. Don't get me wrong. I know uh, I, people who have gone down the alt-right rabbit hole or, or they're Shapiro people or Crowder people, a lot of them are just young, mostly men, coming into their own and sort of starting from scratch trying to learn politics. And so them, I, there is hope. For them, there is, for sure. Um, and I know because I've converted many of them. Others on the online left have converted, converted many of them. So for the, I don't, I have more hope than most do. But when you look at 59% of Republican primary voters, self-identified Republicans, saying it, you have to believe Trump won the 2020 election, this is more like you're talking 60-some-odd-year-olds whose political worldview is already so ironclad and rock solid and total partisan hackery that I don't think they're savable or most of them are not savable. And that's a scary proposition then because they're also some of the most politically active. 
So these are the people who are going to be an issue for, like, midterm elections for sure. Because they're all getting out there to vote for the craziest fucking Republican candidate that gets out there and swears allegiance to Trump. So this is what we're dealing with. A Democratic Party where the electorate keeps moving right and a Republican electorate where they keep moving right. It's a bad mix. You're just going to go further and further and further right. So I am, I'm astounded. I, I wouldn't have been surprised by the same number as the, we think Obama's a Muslim, 43%, although that's still a really high number. If they said that, you know, you need to believe Trump won the 2020 election, but 59%, 60% of the Republican base being this deep down the uber conspiracy rabbit hole, that's really, really not a good sign, man. And I don't know what happens from here. Eventually Trump is going to die. And what happens with all this energy and all these voters? What does it get transferred to? I don't know. But if they, you, you know, the other takeaway from this is this shows the power of propaganda. So what did Trump do while all of us were thinking of Afghanistan and talking about the economy and COVID? What did Trump do? He was just going around the country and going on all these right-wing outlets and saying over and over and over, like, I won the election, 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 I won the election. And when you repeat a lie enough, people who are already inclined to like him start believing it. It's what it is. When you repeat it enough, they'll start to believe it. And so this is a, a case study in how effective propaganda is. And if you just repeat it over and over and over and over and over, people will be like, okay, I guess that's true. There you have it. Nearly 60% of Republican voters totally lost the plot. So unemployment benefits have run out for millions of Americans, and this is absolutely devastating. It was a lifeline in this pandemic and this economic downturn. Um, Well, Fox weighed in on this, and this is the most Fox segment of all time, with how disrespectful they are to working people. The gravy train is full of manifestation and millions of Americans are getting kicked off. The enhanced employment benefits put in place because of the COVID pandemic, ooh, they expired yesterday, which means seven and a half million Americans will be losing the beefed up $300 government checks. That's a weekly stipend. Business owners say they are hoping the cut in aid will help ease shortage staffing shortages, rather, uh, because there are currently a record. Listen to this, 10.1 million job openings out there. So we'll stop in the free checks, get people back to work. Joining me in studio, Fox News contributor, professor of business and economics at the King's College in Manhattan, Brian Brenberg is back for Brianomics. Uh, so as you have pointed out, there are some economic conundrums that are very difficult and some yeah. that are very simple to explain. Where does this fall on the difficult to easy? This, this is a no-brainer. Obviously, when you have 10 million jobs available, what scares me, or at least concerns me, is that it doesn't appear to be a no-brainer to everybody. We've got this heated debate going on right now about whether we shouldn't be extending these just a little bit longer. I think in America of a previous generation could have looked at this situation and said, we've got to get people back to work. Oh, yeah. We've got 10 million imagine jobs. Imagine grandparents? Yeah, I mean, well, no, I can't even imagine them considering this. No. And say, I, let me please take the job, maybe two, maybe three. We've got this culture around work now that views it as a punishment. If you have to work mm-hmm. for a paycheck in a job you don't like, that's punishment. 
wait a second. No, so that that, that is the most money. modern idea infecting our politics right now, yeah. that work somehow has to be totally pleasing to you. No, work's a contribution you make for your family, for your community. You've got to have that kind of attitude. With 10 million jobs available, you've got to have the attitude that I want to take one. Yeah, yeah. If we talk about the incentives that, that stocks and places. It's amazing. Yeah. It's are, amazing. Like, they'll send you to college. I mean, there must be a hundred major corporations that will pay for your college. That's it. And, and even if they won't send you to college, you get in the game and you build the skills you need to build a career. I mean, people say, well, you know, yeah, there's 10 million jobs, but they're really low-paying jobs and, they're, you know, they're not, oh, they're not good jobs. Yeah, but who cares? You've got to start somewhere. In, in, yeah, that's a, why they're in, a, in a society like this, you've got to start somewhere. We've lost the idea that there's an entry-level job. We want to make entry-level jobs, jobs that can support a family of five. That's not going to happen. It shouldn't happen. Look at what they think of you, and look at how they think you should spend your time. I mean, they're just letting it all hang out there. It's astonishing that they did this thinking it would make them look good. So let's run through a bunch of what they said. First of all, they call the extra $300 uh, unemployment the gravy train. Yeah, really living on the high horse there. Extra $300. I mean, honestly, it's just to help save people and get them by. That's all it is. This idea that it's like the gravy train. This is the old conservative trope that, like, really it's, it's, it's the people on welfare who are living the life. It's not these fat cat billionaires who are getting trillions more in wealth during a pandemic and an economic downturn where everybody else is struggling, everybody else is taking a haircut, the rich are running out the back door with all the money, but no, it's not them who, uh, you know, have it easy and have the system rigged in their favor. It's the person who's poor and destitute. Damn, I really uh, admire them, and I want to be in their shoes. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Um, and then they basically admit, look, business owners want to force people back into these jobs. And they're saying it like it's a good thing. Like, they're, obviously, we should all agree with the business owners. They want to force people back to their, these terrible jobs, and that's great. No, I don't think that's great. I think that's terrible. And then they, they talk about how will stopping the free checks get people back to work, and they make it seem like, well, obviously, it'll get people back to work. Funny, because we have data on this. There are conservative states that already cut off the unemployment. And guess what? It didn't get people back to work. It didn't get people back to work at all. So the data shows, no, it actually won't force people back to work, but they want to try it anyway to force people back to work, or they're just cruel and they want to take away money from people who are struggling in the country. It's definitely, at least in part, that. Um, and then the worst part, of course, is they talk about how people think it's punishment to work where you don't want to work. No, it's not. Work doesn't have to be pleasing. Think about the community, which, by the way, m makes the first time ever that anybody on the right has ever cared about the community. But it's only in the context of telling you to shut up and work a job you don't want to work. Isn't that something? I am proudly going to take the opposite position. You should work a job that you find meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, that brings you joy. Of course, you spend most of your waking time at a job. Do I think you should suck it up and hate what you do? Of course not. You should like what you do. Look at how smug and dismissive they are. And by the way, these people would never themselves take one of these bad jobs, ever. That's for you. It's not for them. That's for you. They like to do things that are pleasing and fulfilling. You need to shut up and do the, the menial jobs that I don't want to do. That's the kind of people that we're dealing with. 
they literally bring up fast food places. Like, why would you want to go work in a fast food place? Just shut up and work there. And then they bring up, um, you need to build the skills to build a career. As if all of these low-wage jobs are just, you know, it's just, it's just one step on the ladder to get to a better place. Well, how many times have we gone over this, guys? There's a fallacy embedded in this, this idea that everybody, everybody, if you just work hard, you'll get where you need to be. No, if every low-wage worker in America woke up tomorrow and busted their ass to the best of their ability, are all of them going to get the promotion? Are all of them going to make more money next year? No, that's not true at all. In fact, most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, will be stuck in that low-wage job. So it's just false. It's factually wrong to say, oh, if you just, you know, keep at it, eventually you'll get there. Wrong, which is why we need unions. We need good jobs and strong labor protections. We absolutely need it, because if not, these idiots, people like them, will take advantage of everybody. And then they just let it all hang out when they say, basically, who cares if they're low-paying jobs? They care. The people care. And they should. They absolutely should. Because it's where they spend most of their time. They should be respected, and the minimum wage should absolutely be a living wage, where you should make enough money to be able to survive and be okay. But, you know, these people aren't even in favor... What's-her-face, Kennedy, I think her name is, she's a hardcore economic libertarian. She doesn't even think there should be a minimum wage. So these are the kinds of people that we're dealing with here. They, uh, they don't care about regular people. They don't care about working people. They want you to shut up, get back to work in a job where you're miserable at so that they can feel good looking at some economic numbers on a sheet of paper. Okay. All right, y'all, final story of the day. Fox News finally cares to some extent about innocent people being killed by U.S. drones. This might be the first time ever they talked about this. Take a look. News alert. A bombshell new report suggesting Biden's botched exit from Afghanistan was even worse than we thought. According to the New York Times, the ISIS terrorists that Biden supposedly droned in retaliation for the airport attack in Kabul was not an ISIS terrorist after all. He was a U.S. aid worker. In his rush to clean up the mess, his incompetence caused at the airport where 13 U.S. service members lost their lives, he authorized a drone strike on the wrong guy and likely killed several children as well. Video uncovered by the Times shows that the aid worker was not loading bombs into his car. He was loading bottles of water. Joining me now are two Afghanistan war vets, my fellow Fox and Friends weekend co-host Pete Hegseth and Sean Parnell, retired Army infantry captain. Pete, we were on the air when that drone stroke occurred, and we actually thought, okay, maybe he's finally getting something right here, but we were wrong. Your reaction? It appears, it appears we may be. I mean, first of all, I, Rachel, I'm always skeptical yeah. of the New York Times. <laughs> I'm always skeptical of international journalists given free access in the now Taliban-controlled Kabul. You don't have this kind of extensive reporting without the approval of the Taliban. So they're trying to, even if it's Joe Biden, they're trying to make America look bad, A number one. But if this reporting is correct, then indeed everything you're saying is correct, which is in their haste to make it look like they're doing something. They pushed and pushed and pushed and potentially killed an aid worker who was working on behalf of the United States, which leads to the fact that I I have zero confidence in Joe Biden as a commander-in-chief, especially considering the fact that we had threat reporting 
on the airport at the Abbey Gate in the time period in which our Marines were still allowed to, to, to gather the way that they did, and Sean Parnell knows as well as anybody, if you have a threat active on a location, you have two choices. Go on the offense and create a new perimeter, change the dynamics, or refortify your position. And they did neither. So this is a cascading set of decisions by the Biden administration. And now, if this reporting's true, tragically, in their, in their desire to make themselves look good, they didn't improve the security situation at all, and the wrong people are dead. That's astonishing that they were so careful and they almost defended Biden. You heard Hegseth there. He's like, well, I'm always skeptical of the New York Times. And I mean, they're probably trying to make America look bad, even if it's Joe Biden. Incredible. That's the strongest defense of Biden I've ever seen. And it's after he droned innocent people. Amazing, amazing. Now, they still tried to have their cake and eat it, too. Like, let's attack them a little bit, but also sort of defend them. If this is true, maybe it's true. It's true. And we got the reports a day after from people on the ground. It was all over Twitter. It took now, what, a couple weeks later, the New York Times reports on it. Now they maybe take it seriously. It's amazing who they discount and who they accept. But anyway, um, so, yeah, the New York Times said we didn't kill a terrorist. We killed a U.S. aid worker and civilians and children. And um, they say he wasn't loading bombs. He was loading bottles of water. And we bombed them, thinking it was bombs, or that was rationale they gave. Um, Incredible. I mean, so just to show you, he says, well, this is is why I don't trust Biden as commander-in-chief. Look at what he did here. Well, Trump's very first military act as president, an eight-year-old American girl, was killed in a Yemen raid that he approved. It was Anwar al-Awlaki's daughter, Nawar, and she was fatally shot um, in an intelligence operation on, that was supposed to be on al-Qaeda, but 14 people died, and at least one of them was this girl, and there were other civilians as well. An American girl was killed. Did anybody on Fox News come out and say, well, I, I mean, I don't, trust, I don't trust Trump as commander-in-chief. He just killed a little girl, by the way. Obama had a 90% civilian death rate on the drones. Um, Under Trump, he got rid of the few remaining safeguards there were, like the rules of engagement to use those drones. He got rid of it, and we massively increased drone strikes by 432%. At no point did these people say, well, I can't trust Trump now as a commander-in-chief because of that. Here's the reality. You shouldn't have trusted Obama as commander-in-chief. You shouldn't have trusted Trump as commander-in-chief. You shouldn't trust Biden as commander-in-chief because this is what they do. This is what happens, whether it's the drone war, whether it's using fighter jets, whether it's approving these raids on the ground. I mean, it's a clusterfuck every single time. And the idea that, like, we have such laser precision guided missiles that we could kill a mosquito from 100 miles away. Nonsense. It's utter nonsense. This is, unfortunately, what happened here with Biden is emblematic of the entire war in Afghanistan and the entire war in Iraq. It was really more about, you know, exploiting the region and getting the natural resources and the military-industrial complex profits, and then you have this cover story, and every now and then you mow the grass and kill innocent civilians and pretend like, we killed the terrorists. This is what went on in Afghanistan, for sure. And they walk on eggshells at first. I don't know. They're trying to make America look bad. Usually droning people's great or whatever, but ultimately they are expressing some degree of concern over this. They never would do it under a Republican president. The fact of the matter is, The media should do this under every president. 
George W. Bush was a war criminal. Obama's a war criminal. Trump's a war criminal. Biden's a war criminal. Yes, talk about it like that and hold them accountable. They never do. This is the first time uh, Fox News has cared about drone strikes, and it happens to be under a Democratic president where they could use this to say Biden bad, which is what they did. They, again, try to have their cake and eat it too. At first, they're like, I don't know. Maybe the reporting is wrong. Maybe we're pro-drone striking innocent civilians. But ultimately, they use it to go after him. It's just a great example of how they're partisan hacks, and it has nothing to do with the actual issues in question. Well, you know where to go to get concern among all of the administrations. I'll tell you the truth, because I'm against these drone strikes on innocent people as a matter of principle. I don't care whether it's a Democrat or Republican in office. The way it should be is you care and you hold power accountable. Okay. There we go, baby. That's the show. I love y'all. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. We got, uh, we're back on Wednesday for another episode of Kyle Kalinske show. And uh, like I said, awesome, awesome, awesome Crystal Kyle and Friends this week with Russell Brand. So I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.